What the surf? What the surf? What the surf? Hey, what the surf? What the surf? What the surf? What the surf? Welcome to the second episode of What the Surf, the official podcast of Surf Lifesavers of New South Wales. This month, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the inflatable rescue boat, or IRB, in surf lifesaving. Sally from Avalon Beach chats with pioneer Warren Mitchell, who tested the very first IRB on the 2nd of November, 1969. Harold Marshall from Umina introduces us to New South Wales Youth Lifesaver of the Year, Kai Darwin. Sean sits down with fellow host Jess Collins. She takes us through her extraordinary and inspirational story surviving an accident that changed her life. But first up, Brad and Tony from Kiama take us through their rescue, which won the New South Wales Rescue of the Month for August. What the surf? What the surf? On Sunday the 4th of August, a 58-year-old man was fishing at Little Blowhole, Kiama, when he lost his footing and fell into the water. Passers-by were alerted to the incident by the man's brother, who was unable to speak English. They immediately called triple zero, which led to the Kayama Surf Life Saving Club fallout team being activated, along with other emergency services personnel. The two members of Kayama Surf Life Saving Club who performed the rescue are Brad Dawson and Toby Streamer, who tell us the story of their rescue. Copy that, 21. On the morning of the 4th at 8.55am, myself and Toby received the automatic message from the State Operations Centre. There was a surf rescue emergency off the little blowhole at Kayama. Toby and I then immediately responded, and within seven minutes, the IRB was on the water. We had big swells coming through, especially when launching the IRB. Getting out through that swell was quite difficult, and going around the points as well. Usually, surf beach is rather calm and timid with two permanent rips on either end, and we used the southernmost rip to get out of shore. With the wave conditions, we did have to stick right close to the rocks just to get out as quickly as we could. As soon as we got out past Surf Beach though, all we could see was just a swell coming in from the northeast and it was a very bumpy ride. We got to the scene at Little Blowhole where the duty officer instructed us to go further around, around into East Beach. We immediately sighted the patient. Finding the fisherman was a little bit of a challenge, looking for him through the swell. Once we located him, we pulled up beside him, got him into the boat and you could see on his face a sign of relief. Speaking to him, and he said that he was in the water for about an hour, but luckily he had his life jacket on, which enabled him to stay in the water for that hour. It's very important to wear a life jacket when you're going rock fishing. It doesn't matter what size swell it is, it can help locate when the rescuers are out looking for you, as well as it will keep you afloat for that duration that you're out there. Yeah, he was very thankful. As Toby said, he was out there for over an hour. As soon as we pulled him in, there was just a huge sigh of relief that someone had come and got him. Being out there in those conditions for an hour must have just been so challenging for him. After we got him into the boat, we let Surfcom know that there was only one patient and that he was suffering from hypothermia and ingested a bit of water. Took him into East Beach where ambulance officers were waiting. I started patrols when I was 13. I've been within a few surf lifesaving clubs in the South Coast branch. And when I came to the age of 16, I wanted to be a part of Surf Rescue 50, Kaima's Jet Rescue Unit. And I got my Jet Rescue Boat crewmans, then became on Kaima Callout Team. I've been in Kaima Surf Club most of my life, going through nippers, up the ranks. Did my SRC when I was 13, then went into my bronze. I went in to join the Surf Rescue 50 as well. And through there, I met some other people who booked me on the callout list for Kaima. 
Call-out teams are especially important um, after hours and outside of patrolled areas to assist patrols and other emergency services in emergencies. I'm Sophie and I'm a nipper and you're listening to What the Surf. What the Surf? a beautiful day as the Gold Coast is and at the end of May. Sun was shining, one of those rare 28 degree days and me and half a dozen of my girlfriends were enjoying the morning and thought, oh, we might go and grab some boards and go have a little surf and went from uh, Bellyheads down the coast to Snapper Rocks and just had a bit of fun and caught a fair few waves and then just came off the back of the wave the wrong way and the board hit me and I hit the sandbank. had fractured her C5 vertebrae and was instantly paralysed from the neck down. She was floating in the water with no feeling or movement and no way to know which way was up. What felt like an hour laying there face down. I've never ever felt such pain and panic and the whole time I was just happy that I was alive. I was extremely lucky in the fact that one of my best friends rolled me over so I'm still able to be here now and talk about it. A nipper since age five, Jess's lifeguard experience made all the difference and she knew exactly what she needed to do to save her own life. Hold her breath and stay calm. It was strange that it came over me quite quickly that I just needed to relax um, because I was face down and I knew that there wasn't a whole heap of oxygen left in my lungs and I knew that trying to conserve that as much as I could and relax meant that my life would be saved more so than if I'd had to be rolled over and being unconscious in water, taking on water, having to get CPR, there's a whole other range of issues that can happen there as well as a spinal cord injury. So I kind of knew straight away what was what was going on. The fact that I couldn't feel anything or move anything and then it became a little bit more clearer once we had gotten onto the sand at the beach and they started saying, can you feel this? Can you move that? Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, oh, this, um, this doesn't look good. This is something that I've heard about many times with my SRC and bronze and spinal management. And it also was very helpful that the uh, half a dozen girls that I was out surfing with were all lifeguards and surf lifesavers. So they had a lot of knowledge about what to do. Jess was taken straight to the Princess Alexandria Hospital in Brisbane and her parents got the call to meet her there. Wow, this must be pretty serious if they're telling us to fly interstate to go to a hospital to meet up with Jess. This isn't just a broken arm or a broken leg. Um, so yeah, it turned up into the emergency room just before I was getting placed into ICU before I had to go and have my surgery. And they came in and as all parents do, they're so worried. And I just said, everything's gonna be okay. Um, I'm alive, that's all that matters right now. And the rest of this we'll deal with in time, but just know that I'm alive and I'm going to be okay. And I think that put them at a little bit at ease in such a situation where it's all unknown. Doctors and nurses and surgeons, they can't tell you too much in those early stages other than that you sustained pretty horrific spinal cord injury. This catastrophic injury didn't just change Jess's life, 
but hugely affected her family as well. The whole family has just been turned upside down and inside out because of this. Um, I don't think that any family deserves to go through what I've been going through, especially seen as they're literally the best family ever. Emma and Daniel, nothing but support the entire time. If anyone has ever met my two siblings, they're the best in the business. Emma pretty much gave up everything last year to be by my side every day and every night in the hospital, which was just such a blessing in disguise. And she's done the same now. She's my ride or die, best friend, best sister in the world. And Dan's exactly the same. He's such a little trooper. There's literally no words to put together into a sentence to say how lucky I am that I've been blessed with those two as siblings. They are superstars in everything that they do and I will be forever grateful um, and the same as mum and dad they're the best parents ever um, I know that every child always says that about their parents but I challenge them that mine are truly the best the past year and well nearly year and a half now has been a huge learning experience for all of us and we were already a very close family and this has just brought us closer together and I'm very thankful for everything they do. Jess's whole community has rallied behind her and her family, supporting them with fundraising efforts and home renovations. We had people coming to visit from all over Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, the fundraising that started two days after I had the accident on the GoFundMe page and all of the different surf clubs that had got involved with putting on little raffles and barbecues and donating money and time. And they miraculously have built me a beautiful room and a bathroom and a ramp to get into the house. And without the likes of yeah, the Redhead Surf Club, everything that they have done has just been mind blowing. The Sunflowers for Jess fundraising campaign aims to help her defy her injury in the hope that one day, like a sunflower, she'll stand tall once again. The sunflower has always been Jess's favourite flower and is an important symbol of her recovery. I remember mum buying me little sunflower dresses when I was younger and going all through high school I just you used to contact your books and I would always have sunflower covering and draw sunflowers and it's funny because people often think oh your favorite color must be yellow but no it's actually red and I just I think that they're the happiest flower ever and it's so cliche but I just think that they're amazing flowers in that they stand tall they face the sun no matter what and if it's cloudy and overcast and they can't face the sun they face each other to draw energy off each other and I just think that's such a powerful message that look up to the sky and face the sun and on those dark and gloomy days where the sun's not out which I think is a bit of a metaphor it doesn't necessarily mean the sun's literally not out but you turn to others and you face them. In my sort of situation, yes, one day I do want to stand tall and face the sun, but also on these dark and gloomy days, I do have friends and family that I can turn to and, and get my support and energy off instead. On her road to recovery, Jess is taking part in an exciting new trial where researchers are using an exoskeleton which they hope will one day allow Jess to walk again. They were lucky enough to get some funding for spinal cord injury, so they've gotten into that, so it was the first 
person in, in it, in the trough or spinal cord injury to stand in the exoskeleton. And it has been incredible, squats and leg swings and all sorts of things. And it just feels amazing. It feels feels like normal. It feels like a, a it's so funny. Um, I'll stand up in it and people will come and watch me. And my grandfather will come and he say, it just, it's so strange to see you do that because it feels like I'm just meant to be doing that. So yeah, it just it gives the body such a big stretch and it just feels amazing to be moving in that way. And I think that long term, um, it's really good to keep the body standing for bone density and muscle mass and just keeping everything going because you never know there could be a cure or there could be something developed later down the track. Despite her injuries, nothing has kept Jess away from surf life saving. And this year, she became the newest member of the New South Wales and Australian commentary team. It was such a fun experience. And then to be asked back to do the Australian championships was even bigger and better, of course. And it was so nice to be able to just be up there and experience such a great event and to be able to commentate on it. It's what I would do at home. I'd probably sit down and watch it and yell at the screen and like that anyway so it was so nice to still be able to be connected to a sport that I love fingers crossed I get to do a little bit more Jess Collins has a long road to recovery ahead of her with another surgery already planned for later in 2019 to try and give her a little bit more movement in her left arm we wish her all the best in her recovery hey what the surf what the surf what the surf podcast this is Harold Marshall here delighted to be here with my first podcast recording with you might have still award and also youth lifesaver of the year for the 2019 season, Mr. Kai Darwin. Kai, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm going very well. A little bit nervous, a little bit excited. I guess with this new podcast, it's about trying to find out about, I guess, the amazing clubbies that we've got across the eastern seaboard. And your name pops up everywhere. Tell us a little about your involvement here with Yamina Surf Club. So I've been at Yamina since under sixes, um, done all the way through nippers and seniors. Um, done a bit less competing in recent years and more helping out um, with Branch State and Aussie titles. It's been a while now, I think we said roughly about seven years I think. Yeah, for about seven years when it first came to your minor and then um, when it moved up to Swansea I guess I continued to help out. Also within the last five years, I, I think uh, four or five years, um, helped out at Aussies. What do you find keeps your, I guess, consistent drive for this last seven years, considering that you're only just turned 17 years old? I just love surf lifesaving as a whole. Do all my patrols, I guess, and really great organisation and have a lot of fun with all the people, meeting different people from across the state and across the nation. Is it true that one year at the Australian Titles, they literally had to roster you in RDO because you were turning up every morning at 5am? Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I guess it's just really great being at Aussies. The atmosphere is amazing and, yeah, I just love it. So have you had a favourite Aussies destination you've been to in the last five years? Um, definitely the Sunshine Coast, closely followed by Perth. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Perth was pretty cool, I guess, being on the other side of the country. And, yeah, it was just cool to be, I guess, trip away with our club. And it was a bit more of a team atmosphere, I guess, because we were all staying in the one place. It was really good. Okay, Kai. We're now going to go through some quick-fire questions. Let's do this. Here's Harold's quick-fire questions. Are you ready? Yep. All right. Flat water, no wind, or would you prefer sunshine, perfect swell in the wind and cold? Sunshine, perfect swell. Sweet or savoury? Sweet. Morning or afternoon? Morning. Board or swim? Uh, Board. 
IRB or rowboat? IRB. Stupid question. Yeah. Steak or chicken? A chicken. On patrol, radio operator or first aid? Uh, radio. Morning patrol or afternoon patrol? Arvo. What happens if the subtle is blowing down? Keep cup or do you dislike marine animals? Keep cup. Excellent. Uh, iPhone or Android? iPhone. Music or crime podcasts? Uh, music. Hair up or hair out? Hair out. You actually really do need a haircut. Harry Potter or Fast and Furious? Harry Potter. Train hard and play hard or everything in moderation? Everything in moderation. Holiday destination, beach or bush? Beach. Right or left-handed? Right. Swim, ski or board? Board. Who packs your lunch? Half and half. <laughs> what, mum and dad? Or like half me, half them. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, my brother. First interview here on New South Wales What The Surf podcast. And we'll see you all on the beach. Thank you very much. What The Surf. What The Surf. What The Surf. Surf Lifesavers celebrated a milestone anniversary of the IRB on the 2nd of November 2019. It's 50 years since the day Warren Mitchell of Avalon Beach, SLSC, tested the IRB on patrol. There are many pioneers of the IRB. Warren's story is just one part of this amazing boat's history. Warren now lives in the UK. I spoke with him about the first day and the drowning of a young boy who inspired him to bring the rubber ducky to life in Australia. Warren, what was it that inspired you to get an inflatable boat on Australian beaches? Well, it, it, it's a combination of many years. I mean, um, I was a good belt swimmer at Avalon, and um, I rescued when I was 17. Uh, what was it, about 1954? Uh, I joined the surf club when I was uh, 12, um, but we didn't have nippers in those days. Uh, I, I joined because... Uh, we wanted to do something for the community, and plus the fact down at Avalon there wasn't a lot more to uh, things to do. Um, so joining the surf club was just something uh, that we all wanted to do. And um, I thought the belt was a very dangerous piece of equipment, and uh, we uh, I rescued a few, as I say, a few people at North Avalon uh, when I was 17, and. Uh, it, it wasn't a good rescue and it wasn't easy and it scared me a little bit. And I always thought when we went over to do uh, lifeguard work in England that we could do things better and quicker and certainly safer for development. So I suppose that was the main thing that uh, made me to think we should be doing uh, different things. Tell us about how different the lifesaving was in Cornwall in that first year. Well, we had... We had lots of lots of uh, things that happened. Uh, I, I think this, the biggest problem is uh, when we went over to do lifeguard work. We were the first Australians to do lifeguard work in England, and we brought our flags over and we put the flags in the beach, and no one had seen these before, and we didn't really have any explanation as to what they should do. So everyone thought that the flags indicated the dangerous part of the beach, and they swam outside it, and. <laughs> It took us a year. It took us a year or two years to get everyone to understand that we were trying to put them together, and um, and uh, and keep them safe from the from the rips. But a lot of the problems we had offshore breezes or winds, and um, a lot of the time the surf was very flat. And the kids used to put the uh, lilos and you know these little rubber inflatable boats, and they'd get blown out to sea, and you'd have two or three people to rescue, and we'd. We had belts then, and, and they were no good when because we were a one lifeguard system. 
um, on a, on a beach that could have five thousand people. So we were we were really stretched to uh, save a lot of people uh, just with one lifeguard. There was a lot of reasons, Sally, why why we did things because it was different to Australia because we had lots of people to back you up. There was one incredibly tragic incident over there in Cornwall. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, I, I remember it really, really well. The parents came to me and said, well, we've left him playing on the beach and how tired you've got to remember um, to try and explain to someone. But but for you coming from Avalon or, or people coming from Avalon, when the tide went out in uh, my beach at Watergate Bay, <clears throat> it went out uh, past the headland of uh, Avalon Beach when the tide went out. So when the tide was out, it was fine. It was a big flat area for everyone to play on. But when the tide came in, it cut people off on tides so on, and around rocks and things like that. And that's what basically happened. Um, they left the kid playing with his brother. His brother came back to the parents and the uh, uh, John, I think his name was, was uh, <coughs> left playing. And uh, they searched for him when he went missing for about three hours before they let me know um, that he was missing. So by the time I got to uh, do something, it was it had three hours that had elapsed, and uh, he probably had drowned at that period. So we did we only found his body about five days later, further up the beach, on a on another beach actually. So yeah, it was uh, it, it just it, it highlighted to me that we had to do something different. So was bringing the IRB back to Australia inspired by wanting to do more for that young boy? Yeah, basically, yeah, yeah, because he can't rescue. I mean, I don't want to put the belt down, but look, I mean, the IRB has rescued more people than the belt. And and uh, I feel that, I feel now that we're uh, being forgotten in a way, the boat, um, the jet ski and the drones and all that's come, come about. And uh, we moved on, but I mean, a lot of people should give uh, credit to the boat because it's not me. It was the uh, it was the boat that did it in the first place. If the boat hadn't have been any good, they would have uh, not accepted it. But the problem was uh, the belt was very very important to um, surf life saving in Australia, and they didn't want to let it go. That was a real. I mean, for ten years they didn't uh, they didn't accept it. They didn't. They didn't want the. Uh, they didn't want a power boat to be a success. And a lot of people who are not there now uh, tried very hard to stop it. Um, the people at the moment within uh, Surf Life Saving Australia and its state centre aren't to blame for what happened many years ago. But uh, yeah, it, it took a long time to get it accepted. You had to push pretty hard to have the boat trialled and approved by Surf Life Saving Australia. Why didn't you just give up? The, the motivation was uh, every time people said to me it won't work, uh, that was the worst thing they could have ever said to me. Uh, I, I was very motivated. I still am now. I mean, four years ago, I was, I was teaching um, IRB crews in Germany. I'd, I'd been all over the world teaching people about the boat. But my, my passion and my commitment towards the boat is uh, never-ending. Um, and I know how good it was the first day you ever put your foot in it. That's, that was a problem. Most of the people who um, had never used a boat or never had to do the actual rescue work themselves were in, con- char- or were in control and were in charge of all these, mm-hmm. these 
the bureaucratic um, people said this is the best way to do things, but they never let the people who were just lifesavers like me have a viewpoint. And the biggest problem is we can put this, well, one of the major factors, we can put this inflatable boat in the surf and I can put 40 people on it. I can put 20 people in the boat and 10 on either side. I don't think there's any other piece of equipment can do that as a support unit. It doesn't go anywhere, but you hold that. And the thing is, you can turn the boat upside down and still support the same number. You know, the, the jet ski can't do that and never will. But um, it, this boat has never really been uh, fully understood by the bureaucrats. And the lifesavers have to uh, have some input into it. And that was the problem because I was only a Navalon lifesaver. I had very little input into National Council. And it was like the guys like Harry Brown and other people that helped it who could see the benefits of it. And, and yeah, it, it took a long time. And, uh, and every time people said it wouldn't work, I was, <laughs> I was very determined to make it, uh, show them that it, that it could work. In December 1969, you carried out the very first mass rescue in Australia. Talk us through the event. Yeah, yeah, Johnny and I were down on the beach. It wasn't a big surf. Um, it wasn't a big surf in any way, but, but it, was, um, it was challenging. Anyhow, the eight kids, similar to what happens over in, in, in England here, got caught in the middle rip and they were on a surf plane uh, and got swept off the sandbank into a middle rip and uh, we just we were down uh, practicing with the boat, and we went out and, and performed it really, really well. It, it just it worked really uh, fantastically well. There was the problem is the two reels went out either side of us, and they had floating lines. And at that stage, we didn't have propeller guards. So we a little bit later we had an out, we had an outer propeller guard that we didn't have a front propeller guard, and the outer propeller guard was I was worried about. Getting caught on the on the reel on the line with the beltman in, it, and they could see that I was doing a lot better job than they were. And they, luckily, they pulled them back to the beach, and it gave me freedom of movement uh, that I could use the whole beach. And um, and that's what the IRB is really good at is that we can look at and we can look at an application that, that needs to be looked at with the beach, um, and we then can take our uh, the correct way to proceed through it. Um, I, for instance, if I was ever going to do a, uh, a demonstration at any other beach, and I did many, uh, I'd come down for an hour or so and look at the beach and just sit in the surf club and watch the waves, count the number of uh, waves, uh, swells in the sets and where the reds were and the rocks and, and work out how I was best going to get to sea. And uh, the racing side of it, we, we helped start as well, which is a little bit negative in some ways. They, they only look for a way out and they don't look to manoeuvre and, and go through the surf safely because if you, get to the, if you don't get to the patient because you get rolled over, that's absolutely stupid. Um, so what you really should be pressing or we should be pressing is that they show some surf sense and surf knowledge as to how to get out to the uh, patients in the, in the best and safest possible way. We did one trip out, and uh, I could see that the surf plane was supporting uh, a number of the children quite safely. So what we did was we took the three youngest uh, children uh, back to the beach, um, and uh, they jumped out on the inside. Because of the you know, propeller on, I was very... Uh, 
uh, very conscious of that fact. Um, they jumped out on the inside of the turns and um, got close to the beach and so that I didn't have to actually beach the boat with them in it. So they jumped out in, swam into the, uh, the light uh, savers on the beach and they pulled them out of the water and uh, they were safe. And we went out and repeated the procedure with the other three and, um, you know, all within a, a number of minutes. And um, we finally got out there and picked up the last two remaining kids and the surfer plane. We came back to the beach and everyone was really happy, so was I. Um, but we, we performed it so quickly, so safely. And the kids just melted back into the crowd. And we never got any names. And uh, I was always sorry, and Johnny Bull was with me at the time. And uh, Johnny was a terrific support, and there's people at Avalon, uh, Johnny Towner and Johnny Parley and uh, Ross Lumsden. Uh, I, could name, I could name so many of the guys that, that were a help to the boat. And if it hadn't have been for them as a team effort, we wouldn't have done it. But they believed in what I believed in, and uh, the surf club committee itself also backed us by buying the boat and in those days the inflatable from Dunlop was a thousand dollars and I think the motor was uh, five hundred dollars as well so we were all equipped with a a boat and a motor and everything for one and a half thousand dollars and nowadays um, the cost of one is is quite remarkable. The surf clubs were prepared to buy any inflatable boat that they could get their hands on and some were only were only really dinky toys and there was a lot of accidents and people, the boats fall over all the time because the boats weren't suitable. But surf clubs wouldn't spend any money. I think one surf club had a uh, uh, an inflation tube from a tractor and it put a bit of a timber bit on the back and they were trying to use that. So in those days, surf clubs didn't have much money and they were prepared to use anything that was called an inflatable. After it was approved... Did a number of people come together to help further the design? Well, there was a lot of things that uh, Harry had a, came up with a rubber floor that could come out and uh, you could actually throw it overboard and it would be a support unit for other people. Um, Harry was terrific and uh, a national council. Uh, some of the meetings were quite lively and uh, people didn't want to change, but Harry, slowly by slowly, because he was in... A position to change things. He was secretary um, uh, of the uh, honorary secretary that was of Surf Life Saving Australia. I think uh, Gus Thornton was uh, the CEO at that time. And um, so, yeah, Harry was fantastic. And, and Harry sadly passed away a few years ago, of last year, I think it was. And, and I was sorry. Um, he was a good mate. We had a lot of fun together. I couldn't tell you all the stories that happened, but. It was uh, it was so much fun to be with these people because we were all believed. It was a bit like a church, I suppose. Um, you could tell it all, all the people that uh, worked together to help promote it, and there was a lot of guys from Salty's Beach as well. We had we had fun, you know. It wasn't just all work. It was uh, it was a lot of fun, Sally, and uh, which is what surf clubs should be, you know. If, if if we've got hundreds and hundreds of awards to get, uh, at the end of the day, if we don't make it fun and, um, and enjoyable for younger people and older people, um, I, I still get enjoyment of, of training younger crews and, and people uh, listening to what I have to say. The development of, from the airships um, in, in the early centuries 
to the inflatable boats today is a story in itself and takes ages to tell. But it's, it's so interesting how the evolution and Jack Cousteau in the 1950s doing his oceanography with Zodiac boats and that. It's very, very interesting how it all developed. And, and I only use the boat as a surf rescue piece of unit, so it's not something that... And it saved a lot of lives in the First and Second World War, inflatable life rafts. And the life rafts and the inflatable boat are exactly the same, except one's got a transom and the other one's got a canopy. So they're all the same. They're out of the same family. The airship came about, um, you know, and, and, and the aeroplane killed it. And there was 200,000 people in, in uh, Europe building airships. And they had all these millions and millions of square yards of fabric of, um, from the airship, which when the aircraft came about, no one wanted to build airships anymore. They didn't know what to do with So they turned around and started making life rafts. And the life rafts went on all the ships. And all the ships during the First and Second World War had life rafts on them. So every one time a ship got sunk, they took to the life raft. And the life raft saved over 100,000 lives in the First and the Second World War. So, and the life raft companies only started making life rafts. And they turned around and started making inflatable boats. So it was just um, a different product that they've been building for ages. And, of course, the people building airships 400 feet long, it wasn't a problem for them to build a life raft because the technology was there. All they had to do was scale their, their thinking down to, a, to make it uh, work out that they were building something that was saving a life instead of destroying it, like the airships were bombing people. And here we we had was a, was a piece of uh, life-saving equipment long before I was using it. But I just happened to work in the surf, and I put my technology that I learned in the uh, with the boats in, into the surf, and I sat down and worked out how to best use it, and and that's all. And and so it's it's not it's not me. It's the boat, and and the boys that I and the guys I work with at Avalon and Harry Brown at National Council. So, yeah, it's a team effort from a lot of people. So 50 years of IRBs and 108,000 lives saved. What does that actually mean to you? Oh, Sally, it, it means a lot. But in the early days of, um, of records with, um, with the IRB, we were lumped together with the skis in the early days, in the early reports. Um, we weren't considered uh, important enough to have our records uh, recorded. And, and our records went in with board and ski rescues in, our, in the early reports in National Council. And, and the life saved is, yeah, that's, that's all it means to me. That's all that, you know, um, I, I met the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh because of my life-saving days, and that doesn't mean anything to me. doesn't mean a thing. But, but every time someone puts their hand out for an IRB to rescue someone, my hand, you know, and uh, and the others, all the other crews as well. It's 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 our hand saving lives, and and while the boat continues to do it, um, it's it's just great. It gives me a good feeling, you know. A pretty special feeling, and a legacy you've helped create. Yeah, yeah. Like if we if we all come into, I mean, all people do seem to talk about death and destruction nowadays. I don't know about over in Australia, but in the, over here in the UK at the moment. You know, the animosity towards people instead of the goodwill and, and the handshake and the genuine handshake um, and feeling that 
that when you come into the planet that we should be trying to stabilise? Why, why should we be looking the other way and, and thinking, well, we don't like him or do, we'll sort something out? I, I mean, I'm digressing, of course, from life-saving, but, yeah, it's important. It's very important that we um, come forward, step forward and say, a lot of the time people said to me about the boat, oh, that's no good. And my attitude used to be to them was, well, if that's no good, you tell me what is, you know? And no one can ever come up with an argument like that because they haven't got an idea. But all they think is, oh, that won't work. Well, I don't want to know that. It's different to what we know. And tradition has got to move on sometimes. And as long as people have got in some intelligence, people will move on. It's only when we stagnate and stop stop thinking about what we're uh, we're doing, and that's why the drone the drone will be a very good bit of, bit of kit, and uh, it'll, it'll eventually we'll we'll be doing jet in ten years' time. We'll be doing jet backpack rescues. Someone will stand on the beach and just pull a lever, and he'll go up in a jet and. Uh, go over the patient, put a net down, pick them up and drop them back on the beach and, and it'll be that easy and that safe. And in 10 years it will happen. Do you think it's that integrity and goodwill that makes our movement so strong? Yes, Sally. It, it's, I, go, I go to surf life saving in Wales and England and in Germany and that, and the goodwill's there. It's not, it's not just the lives that I've saved in, in, in Australia, it's, it's, it's worldwide. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking there may be one to two million people being rescued because there's 40 other countries around the world that are using the boat, the very same boat that I developed, the uh, crew configuration, where we sit, size of the motor, size of the boat, everything's exactly the same. Yeah, it, it, um, it, it's important that uh, the other people understood what I was trying to uh, do, and but of course... Uh, once Australia accepts things, a lot of the other countries have, have got a tendency to accept it as well. I can go to any surf life-saving movement around the world and uh, it's because we're a group of people that would care about saving lives. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a club, as you said, Sally, and, and you're well aware of, of uh, the feeling that or the commitment that you've got, the time that we spend at committee meetings trying to get things through and passed uh, is uh, is not uh, thought much about, but I spent a lot of time at committee meetings and uh, and demonstrations all around the world, and yeah, it's it's given me a lot of satisfaction. And are you proud of what you've created? Um, what I'm what I'm most proud of is is the concept of the boat uh, we set up 50 years ago. It's it's like a mousetrap. Um, it's simple. Um, it shouldn't be complicated. It's 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 lasted 50 years. Uh, the Concorde has come and gone. Uh, a lot of technology has come and gone. Uh, the boat still lives on, um, and I can walk on to any beach in England here, and um, they've got an Arantia boat, and uh, it's exactly the same as my boat was 50 years ago. And my boat's in the museum in Sydney. Um, the uh, Maritime Museum has, has got my boat and motor from the. 1970s. So it's it's yeah. I I go and see it every now, now and then. It's uh, it's it's good. Um, yeah, a terrific amount of satisfaction, Sally. And it's good to talk to you about it too because I haven't done that for a while. As a youth, uh, it was it was great. It was fun. Um, I got an education from doing life saving and 
didn't make any money out of it, but yeah, I got enjoyment in it. So at the end of the day, it's probably more important than a lot of other things. The day we lose it, then uh, I think we'll lose members because it's at the end of the day, Sally, we, we've got to we've got to continue on with that. Thanks for listening to What the Surf. We'll be back next month with more stories from up and down the coast, on and off the beach. And remember, if you're visiting our beaches, swim between the flags and download the BeachSafe app to check beach conditions. Thanks to Afters and Greg Rennell and Patrick for their assistance with this podcast. For more information on surf life saving, search Surf Life Saving New South Wales. You can contact us via email podcast at surflifesaving.com.au and don't forget to like and subscribe to what the surf available wherever you get your podcasts